It's January 20th, 2022, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lees, and I'm your host for today. The Frontier Center for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better country. We are an independent and nonpartisan policy think tank, and our topic today is about saving Canada's democracy. Is that topic hyperbole in your opinion? Well, that's a good question. Let's reflect on that just briefly as the opener. As we, t- as we teeter into the third year of COVID-19 pandemic, lockdowns, more variants of the Greek alphabet, and more boosters, our situation is challenged to say the least. So in response, Canada's 14 governments have instituted unprecedented drastic measures and policies all to safeguard human health. Our guest today would argue that these actions, among others, have severely curtailed individual rights and freedoms while causing enormous economic, social, and ironically, impact on people's health. On the 40th anniversary of a written National Charter of Rights and Freedoms in in our country, I'm delighted to welcome the last living signer of the 1982 Charter. The Honourable Brian Peckford was the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Mr. Peckford is a former educator, business person, and passionate advocate for rights and freedoms and, dare I say, citizenship in our nation. He's also a friend of Frontier. Welcome, Mr. Peckford. David, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here and to participate in this, uh, this discussion, debate, or whatever you want to call it. Very good. Well, we're delighted to have you today, Brian, and, and uh, we have so much to cover today and, and uh, delighted that uh, we'll be able to uh, set the stage together for this far-reaching discussion. And I'd like to do so by inviting you to share a little bit of a glimpse with our audience about who Brian Peckford is. Um, can you tell us briefly where you grew up and how did you get involved in the political scene? Okay, well, I'll, uh, as briefly as I can, I, w- I was born before Confederation, before Newfoundland joined Confederation. I think that should be pointed. I was born in 1942, and Newfoundland um, and uh, became a province of Canada in 1949. So I was uh, going on my seventh birthday uh, when uh, the uh, Newfoundland uh, left its former Dominion status and joined another Dominion, the Dominion of Canada, in 1949. And so. Um, I remember briefly uh, around that time, because right, there was a lot of um, activity and discussion, <clears throat> but just very briefly, I do remember about it very vaguely as a six-year-old. And then uh, I went to school, and this was in Whitburn, Newfoundland, which was about 50, 60 miles from St. John's. As a matter of fact, it was an inland town. It wasn't on the water, it wasn't on the ocean, believe it or not. It was only not very far away from the ocean, but it wasn't on the ocean. It was really a railway town. And the Newfoundland Railway went through, went, went through the center of Whitburn. So my first experiences as a, as a boy were not in boats and down on the wharf, but uh, on uh, watching trains come and go and putting little coins on the, on the rail and seeing the coin being flattened as the train went by. <laughs> so that's my early recollections as a boy for example, but we moved when I was in grade three, eight years old, to Marystown in the south coast of Newfoundland, 
And of course, uh, there we were on the water. And so I grew up then in Marystown from grade four, I think it started grade four to beginning of the grade nine. So a lot of my schooling was in a very rural setting, uh, very small uh, town. We didn't have electricity at the time. I studied from grade four to grade nine with a Latin lamp. And we didn't have a connection road right away. It came a little bit later. We finally got a road connection so that we could drive to St. John's, if you will, the capital. But <clears throat> when we moved there, we didn't have that. So we were highly dependent upon the coastal boats that were running around the province, bringing freight and supplies to the communities that were not connected by road. So therefore, I'm a very, <clears throat> I consider myself a very fortunate uh, Canadian and Newfoundlander because I was able to see, even though I was young, I was able to see both uh, sort of before and after uh, Newfoundland being highly agrarian and rural uh, with very little uh, services and then afterwards seeing that. <clears throat> and uh, my father was a social worker and we used to travel, he used to travel around in, in boat. Most of his communities were no, I didn't have roads either. And I used to travel around with him. I was really the only one of the family that was really interested in doing that. And so it was easy for me to go with my father because I didn't have to, to share him with anybody else. And so those were very impressionable days for me. Traveling in Placentia Bay, to the islands in Placentia Bay mainly, and visiting these very, very small uh, rural communities where they only saw one government person, and that was a social worker. There was no police there or any security of that type. They didn't need it. The community itself looked after all of that on its own. And so the, I, I, would, I, would, um, I would categorize that as being one of the pockets of experience which stayed with me right to this day. And my father was a great storyteller. And so uh, when we were traveling, mainly an open boat, um, he would relate stories to me about these various islands we we're about to attend. And he would actually even relate to me about um, some of the circumstances that he was going to encounter when he went to those places where people were poor or people were old or people were sick. And he had to deal with them all. Mm. Uh, so the social workers in those days dealt with everything from child welfare to security to policing to you name it. Whatever came up, the social worker had to deal with it. So that's where I grew, grew up until I was in grade nine, about 13 or 14 years old. Then we moved to Lewisport, which was a much more developed community in the northeast coast. So I was born in Whitburn near St. John's, then moved to the south coast of Newfoundland, and then finished my high school education on the northeast coast of Newfoundland in a community called Lewisport, which also had a train, but was on the coast. And it was one of the terminuses or one of the terminals for distributing goods and services to the more isolated communities north of Lewisport. So now I had a real good mixture of uh, nearby fishing and also the railway and a community that was quite vibrant compared from where I had come from. And so uh, that's why I finished my high school education and then went on to Memorial University and graduated with a bachelor's in education and then postgraduate work in history, French language and, and psychology. 
I was always, <clears throat> I had a, a sort of a broad interest. And so that postgraduate work sort of would indicate that. I was a great history buff and I had some great history uh, uh, professors at Memorial. And I did a lot of history and I did a lot of English literature and later became an English teacher as a result. And a great fan of Shakespeare's and a, com a complete devotee to the Romantic poets. So that's a little bit, and, and I did a lot of the classics, Greece and Rome. I still have the books today right here in my library behind me. So I, I still read Greek and Roman history, in particular, some medieval history, and then later, later um, Renaissance, beyond the Renaissance and Reformation period, up to Napoleon. And so uh, I'm sort of a history English kind of person. But uh, then when I graduated from university, I went uh, teaching for four or five years, and that's when I got the political bug and got involved in politics. But while in university, I did run for student council and got elected. And I did, um, I did uh, join a debating society. So I had never had any experience while that. Coming from rural Newfoundland, we were considered to be, you know, the real awkward, <clears throat> poor speaking Newfoundlanders. We were the Baymen. So that was another lucky thing in my experience that I was a Baymen because today I'm so proud of that, because I was able to understand rural Newfoundland from whence I came. And my parents came from St. John's. So I did growing up have a lot of ex uh, exposure to my father and mother's experiences growing up in St. They were born and raised and educated in St. John's in, in what was then the big city to us. So I was able to have a good balance of the, uh, the uh, rural and the urban in my experiences as a student, right? As a, as a high school student and then as a university student. But one thing stands out that you might, your um, audience may be interested in is that most of the, it's really interesting how um, things have changed. And in those years, because the Bayman had such poor language skills, so-called oral language skills, um, written language skills, I think we were perhaps equal, if, if not better than, the, than the, the city people, but our oral language skills, because we had all of these various accents, depending on what bay you came from in Newfoundland, you had a different accent, and we could all tell what bay you came from by the way you spoke, okay? Well, this was considered to be an inferior, um, uh, what shall I say, an inferior, uh, an inferior behavior pattern that had to be changed. And so as we came into university, uh, we were going to be giving tests, oral tests. And then based upon how these two professors who were interviewing you felt you either will have, have to take a speech course or not. This completely offended me to my bones even then. Offended me. Of course, when I talk to other students, well, you just go along with it. You just go along with it. And so, so was that part of the, the bridge and transition then that brought you into political life then, Brian? Well, per perhaps, perhaps. I was completely offended by this. I was so offended by it that, uh, and I never told the other students this, but they knew how I felt, but they, they weren't on my side. I mean, some of them were on my side, but they wouldn't say anything. And of course, my whole life has been like that ever since, right to this moment, as you know. Uh, most of the people with whom I associate are not on my side. Uh, and that's been true all my lifetime. But this is perhaps a really good example of the beginning of that and links right into today. 
So I asked a few students, well, what happens when you go in the class, when you go in the room to get your test done? Oh, well, there's usually two professors behind a table and they're there and you sit down uh, on the other side of the table and they give you stuff to read. Depending on how, how you read it, they determine whether in fact you have to take the speech test or not. Well, in an act of defiance, when I entered the room to take my speech test, I wouldn't sit down. Wow. <laughs> and so they asked me three or four times to sit down. And I said, no, I'm not sitting down. Number, well, here is the uh, stuff we want you to read. No, I said, I'm not reading. And they said, Mr. Peckford, this is part of the test, speech test that you have to take because you don't belong to St. John's. You belong to rural Newfoundland. And therefore, you take this. And I objected to that being discrimination and all the rest of it. And so wow. I looked at them and I said, I think one was a lady and one was a man. And I said, looked at them and I said the following Professors, it little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I'd meet and dole unequal laws into a savage race that knows not me. <clears throat> when I went on another while with Ulysses, Tennyson's Ulysses, one looked at the other and they said, stop. And I kept going, of course. <laughs> wow. So this sets the stage, Brian, for the kind of person, the kind of leader you are and how you served proudly as premier yes. of Newfoundland and Labrador. How many years yes. were you premier? Pardon? How many years were you premier? Ten. But before I finish this, I want to finish that story. Okay. One professor looked at the other and tried to get me to stop. I finally stopped just before the end of the, of the poem uh, in, in, in partial respect to these people. <clears throat> and they said, you can go. And I never heard tell of taking any speech, speech class afterwards. Isn't that remarkable? Wow. Hard so, to then, so then I went to university and was part of the debating club, part of the student council in my later years in university <clears throat> and then graduated in 1966 and then went out teaching in Springdale, Newfoundland on the northeast coast of Newfoundland <clears throat> and taught there for four or five years and then got into politics. Primarily I got into politics and I guess the word that most captures uh, for me, me, is fairness. The word fairness has always come up in my life when I was a boy playing baseball or playing soccer. It always came to the forefront when we were organizing a team and we had to be fair that was, both teams had the same number on it and that we were following the same rules. And if we weren't following the same rules, I got very angry and made sure it did. And so usually I would end up being the person who organized all of these things because that was the easiest way to get on with the game without having Brian too angry. So, wow. And anyway, I went teaching English uh, at Grant Collegiate in Springdale in uh, the fall of 1966-67. And um, then, uh, as I say, I got involved in the, uh, in the community a little bit. Um, I, I love teaching uh, and uh, I love the students and uh, I had a, a great experience for those four or five years. I enjoyed every single minute of it. I introduced Shakespeare to grade seven. So everybody who graduated while I was there in that school had at least five, if not six Shakespeare's under their belt when they went to university. And I introduced um, economics to the final year of school. No, there was no economics being taught. 
So I went to the principal and persuaded him to allow, allow me to teach economics. I went to the principal and got him to agree to teach Shakespeare in grade seven, because then it was only in grade 10 and 11, the last two years of school. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have grade 12 then. And so I was always sort of a bit of a, a trailblazer in that sense. So, and, uh, and then I introduced civics to grade eights so that they had to learn about the systems of government, both in Canada and in North America. And that was the name of the sort of little course that I developed. And all the kids loved it. I mean, and, and, and guess what? It was on a Friday afternoon when all the kids would normally want to get out of class, you know, at three o'clock. And when they had to stay an extra hour because of the civics, which they understood that I was bringing in and that they could probably leave at three if they wanted to. But I can say that now one student, after the first uh, week or the first Friday of that class, wanted to leave at three o'clock. Wow. They all stayed till four o'clock. And we had a wonderful year uh, learning about the governments of the United States of Mexico and the governments of Canada. Very good. Well, I'd like to ask you, Brian, to give us a, a quick civics lesson uh, to set the stage for 1982. Um, how, what was the lead up to 1982 and the meetings of the first ministers and why our nation needed a constitution? Did we not have a constitution to begin with? Right. Well, in 1867, the, uh, the uh, Imperial Act, because it wasn't an Imperial Act, an Act of, of London, of the United Kingdom, established Canada and established uh, four provinces. Upper Canada became Ontario, Lower Canada was Quebec, and of course, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So there were only four that came in and, and formed Canada at the beginning, right? And so Canada got formed as a federal state, uh, like the United States, like Australia, like Germany, but not like the UK or France or New Zealand. And so we were a federal state where the powers were shared between both levels of government, the province and the federal government. The, the powers never resided in one jurisdiction. It was shared between the different jurisdictions. But one thing absent in the BNA was any mention of individual rights and freedoms. And this is very uh, crucial to what we're talking about now. No mention of any individual rights and freedoms. Canadians from 1867 to 1960 uh, lived under British common law and customs and conventions that had developed after 1867, or even before 1867 for that matter. And so if you had an individual right or freedom issue when you went to a lawyer, well, then that lawyer had to argue from the point of view of finding precedents in common law, British common law, and whatever, in order to advance your case, okay? This is really um, not known. A lot of people that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to thousands now in the last several months, had always thought there was something there in the BNA Act that just had to be reformed a bit more. Uh, but that's not true. There was nothing there about individual rights and freedoms. The first time it really became uh, a national um, matter, as opposed to a federal or provincial matter, was when John Diefenbaker in 1960 introduced the Bill of Rights into the House of Commons. Uh, to be brief on that, so we can get on to the more stuff of today, there were two flaws in that, even though we should congratulate Mr. Diefenbaker and his government for highlighting the fact that there was such a thing as individual rights and freedoms, and just perhaps they should be put in law. In this case, it was, of course, only the federal law, so it only applied to federal jurisdiction. And secondly, uh, federal acts and provincial acts, as we all know, can be temporary. Any majority government can amend it from any time. So it had two big flaws. So from 1960 to 1982, the great debate 
among scholars and others and interested in political science was we really needed a, a, a more expansive Bill of Rights. In other words, one that applied to all Canadians, no matter where they live, okay. and not just in federal jurisdiction. Now, I recall the birthing of the Constitution remarkably well um, as, a, as a kid. I, I watched probably too much news, Brian. I remember you well. And it's very interesting. I know it was a very fierce, tough battle, both politically and legal. I know the Prime Minister of the day, uh, Mr. Trudeau, even acted unilaterally to try to bring his vision or version of a proposed constitution. And um, it didn't really work out. He needed the support of uh, First Nation, uh, sorry, uh, First Ministers, including yourself. And uh, that he had to square that circle. And uh, it, was a, it was a tough issue. So can you tell us what happened there on, at that moment where yes. he had to come to that realization that he had to work with the, fir the uh, First Ministers? Well, what's interesting, we all got together and, and in 1980 and began the negotiation towards uh, having a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms and patriation of the Constitution, because that was the other element that was very important for Canadians ever since 1867, really, because there were still residue powers that the UK Parliament had over Canada, which got eliminated to quite a degree by the Statute of Westminster in 1931. But there was still the issue of changing our Constitution and that we would still have to refer to England to do that. So there were two crucial issues. Uh, dealing with what happened in 81 and 82. One was patriation. In other words, the Constitution coming home for the last time and we wouldn't have to go back to England anymore to amend anything to do with how we wanted to operate. And two, uh, including a Charter of Rights and Freedoms with that same uh, action, okay? And so the negotiations began. This is the important thing that history is not recording very well or not at all, uh, is that the, the negotiations were underway and it was only after negotiations were underway that the Prime Minister left the table and went and did his unilateral action. And his reason was that he couldn't get along with the premiers. He, it was impossible to deal with these warring factions that he'd like to call Balkan states and stuff. He always tried to put some kind of a historic connotation on it to give it the worst possible um, uh, uh, implication to Canadians. So we were just a warring bunch of, of pirates almost. <clears throat> and of course, the, the, the press lapped it up because the press, press were in his, his paws, in his hand. <clears throat> because he was a brilliant man and we were not. Uh, and so therefore that ended that. So he left the table. We were very uh, surprised at the time, not all of us, some of us, but all of us were surprised when he decided to go and pass his own bill in the House of Commons to unilaterally patriation the constitution and at the same time include his version of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. <clears throat> well, the, the country split. Eight provinces said you couldn't do this and two said, we'll go with the federal government. Ontario and New Brunswick, to their everlasting shame, went with the federal government and supported the unilateral actions that the federal government were taking. Once again, not too many people remember about that. Mm -hmm. Well, to make a long story short, the eight that split opposing him took him to court, took his government to court. And on September the 28th, 1981, his friends of the Supreme Court, who in that day, in that day, were more friends of the court than they were of the prime minister, ruled against him and said, you can't unilaterally do what you're trying to do. It is unconstitutional. That's what the court said. It was unconstitutional. And you needed the support of the majority of provinces in order to do things which were going to affect 
the powers of wow. and and you were there and and so very <clears throat> briefly i just want to um refresh people's memories we had some some significant names of people with yourself like peter lawheed bill bennett yeah angus mclean yeah and john buchanan from nova scotia alan blakeney of course saskatchewan and yourself yeah. and sterling lyon of manitoba and sterling lyon of course yeah, Sterling Lyon, very, very key player in all of this, by the way. And why, why, why do you say that, uh, Brian? Because he was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. He was a skeptic about the charter. And why? why do you he, say that? he thought he thought that what is happening today could very well happen. That you, that a federal government would, and, and the government would try to run roughshod over it, even if it was in the constitution. So the charter would be used against the people in, in some manner. Yes. Yes. He didn't think, uh, so we brought him around, uh, if you will, that's a terrible phrase, but over time during, during the, the 70, by the way, it was 17 months of negotiations. This just shouldn't happen in three or four days. There were 70 months of negotiations, but Sterling Lyon was one of those who was a bit of a skeptic concerning uh, the charter and whether it, could, it really would last. But over time, he was persuaded by us and I guess perhaps his attorney general, whose name at the time I think was... I think it was Mr. Mercier, mm. Gerard Mercier, who was the AG for Manitoba, uh, but was persuaded that what we were arguing, uh, and because it was going in the, uh, the Constitution Act, of a, you know, would be a Constitution Act, that it would be protected. Uh, but yes, those were the names, and, and uh, Bill Bennett and, and his advisor, Mel Smith, plays very strongly in this, Peter Lougheed, Alan Blakeney, and their advisors, um, Sterling Lyon, Agnes McLean of PEI was extremely strong, a very wise man who had been in the, the, the cabinet of, of, of John Diefenbaker's, as a matter of fact, was a veteran and was veterans affairs minister in Diefenbaker's cabinet. Very strong man who doesn't get near the credit that he should get. And of course, Levesque was part of the group of eight too. Rennie Levesque was until those last few hours when he uh, wouldn't agree to the proposal that I had put forward that later broke the impasse and, and led to the Patriation Act, which is now the Constitution Act of 1982. So I know we've swept through this history uh, quite quickly and, and a number of the personalities, and I know you can't speak for, you know, those persons that are no longer with us, but in this context today, what is, what's the core? How do you summarize your concerns that the actions that our governments have taken today are really a fundamental violation of all the incredible work that you as drafters came up with. Okay. The governments of Canada, all 14 of them, are violating the provisions of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, especially sections 2, 6, 7, and 15, because they erroneously think that they can override these rights and freedoms because of section one of the constitution, which says, yes, you can override these freedoms uh, under certain circumstances. But the intent of section one, and I remember it well, because we were putting it in the constitution. This wasn't your ordinary federal act. And by merely put, putting in the constitution by, by definition, as I say in my late letter to the attorney general of Canada yesterday, by definition, this meant permanence. This meant sustainability, okay? And that any override would have to be in very, very dire circumstances. And the intent of section one was that a dire circumstance would be war, insurrection, or a threat to the existence of the state. 
It wasn't meant for a fabricated emergency pandemic that we have today, where 99% of the people who are infected recover and way less than 1% fatality rate. That's not a threat to the state. And therefore, my argument is that Section 1 does not even apply to the present circumstance. Okay. So therefore, what they're doing is unconstitutional. But I go on to argue that being a reasonable person, all right, let's for argument's sake say it does apply. And if Section 1 applies, there are four tests that had to be met, even in war and insurrection. That's how well, crucial and important we thought this was, that even in war and insurrection, the governments, in order to, over, to step on the rights and freedoms of Canadians that we were enshrining in the Constitution, they would have to meet four tests. Demonstrably justify, by law, reasonable limits, free and democratic society. All the three. The fourth one, you have, have to do it in the context of free and democratic society. I argue that no government in Canada, from St. John's to Iqaluit, to Victoria to Toronto, have in any way met those four tests. So even if it did apply, it's unconstitutional. Okay, so you think that the response by these governments, and you have a very hard-hitting analysis, there's a lot more detail to this if, if people want to read that on our website, but the bottom line is that this is not, in your mind, a war situation, is it? No, no, and there's no, no, no peril to the state. And, and the other part of the argument is, of course, we all know that there were early treatments available that the governments knew about or ought to have known about very early on that would have reduced the number of hospitalizations uh, than what we have today. That, that Colonel David Redmond's excellent presentations where emergency measures organizations in every province were available that already had plans to deal with all kinds of emergencies which were not looked at, were not even consulted. Okay. So the fact is there didn't have to be a pandemic to start with because there were measures available to the governments early on that they could have used, which have, which have, would have prevented any uh, capacity issues in their hospitals or with their medical systems. So this is not what could, should have happened. Dr. Douglas Allen at Simon Fraser University did a study back in April, 2020. Eight, he took a study and reviewed 80 studies from around the world, which showed that the cure was worse than the disease. And yet governments never even reacted to that. And that's over a year and a half ago. So there's no data available if the, all the data is used to support what has happened here in this country and to keep declaring cases and cases when the PCR test is only 5% effective. Right? Okay. Masks are not, are not effective. Brian, if we could just pause there for a sec. So you would, would you agree, though, that there is a pandemic? No. You wouldn't agree to that? No, of course there not. There is a virus. There is a virus, yes. That, but, was, that was manageable at the time, if they had looked at all the information. Okay. So we knew fairly early on that fortunately Absolutely. the death rate is relatively low. We need to protect the vulnerable, which Canada arguably didn't do that great a job in terms of ranking of OECD countries, ironically. But you're arguing that in their actions, their lockdowns and their restrictions, they fundamentally have violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of Canada. Absolutely. And erred in science as well. And erred in science along the way. The Great Barrington Declaration came out in October 2020 uh, by the leading epidemiologists and, and, and scientists in the world, which tens of thousands signed afterwards, which said, protect the vulnerable. We know where the problem is. The virus attacks seriously those mm -hmm. 
who are older and not just older, but with core morbidities, who have other illnesses, and then their immune system is down, they get attacked and can and can die. And so okay. that's who we should be protecting. That's who we didn't protect. And we can see that in Ontario and Quebec and throughout all the all the, the provinces, we did a, a lousy job on, on doing what we should have been doing, which was protect the, those who are most vulnerable. Otherwise, let the economy operate as it should. Okay, so you're speaking powerfully to the idea that lockdowns are to be avoided, they kill people, and clearly the statistics from many sources, including Statistics Canada, no less, uh, confirm that. Um, so you're a former premier, uh, Brian. So what in your mind has really happened here when you look at the stage of first ministers, the prime minister, no less, kind of abandon the charter. What what has gone on here? Why would they give the keys, so to speak, to some unelected health bureaucrats like medical officers of health? No offense to them. Why would we not follow uh, proper emergency planning that ironically we did work on preparing for a pandemic, which never recommended lockdowns? What happened from your point of view? What happened was that the Canadian Confederation and Canadian democracy started to decline three or four decades ago, four oh, or five. I see. Okay. And so what happened was that the role of parliament and of the MP and of the MLA, it's the role of cabinets even, began to decline. The power shifted over time without a shot being fired so that the premiers and the prime minister became almost like little monarchs. Well, mm. in the case of the prime minister, a real monarch. How many people are reporting directly to the prime minister today, even though he's got all these ministers, all these deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers? Somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 people okay. report directly to the prime minister from the prime minister's office and the privy council office. They don't report to anybody else. They report directly to, to him. Okay, so that's this interesting. Is, so you're, you're arguing that this doesn't, just didn't happen overnight. This has been a long run up. And this, we've basically forgotten what happened at Runnymede some 800 years ago on the meadow with the king and said, absolutely. we're the people. Absolutely. Yeah, a absolutely. And there's a book that everybody should read. Every Canadian was interested in Canadian public policy and governance in this country. And it's by Donald J. Savoy. Yeah, terrific. Who's at, who's at the University of Moncton. He wrote a book called Democracy in Canada, the Disintegration of Our Institutions. That, that is a must read by anybody interested in the governance of Canada. And he wow. documents all of this. This is not just hearsay or some uh, premier in his late 80s going into his 80th year uh, somehow uh, espousing something uh, for, for years ago. This is documented by, by uh, Savoie, who's one of the most mm -hmm. able and, and one of the people who've been watching what's happening in Canada for decades himself. Yeah. Very, so, very thoughtful book. I would recommend it as well. I want to lead up to a two-part question, Brian, and I want to just set the stage quickly. Um, we live in a wonderful country, as you know. Um, it is among the best, but we're, to use the analogy, uh, referencing your place where you grew up in Newfoundland, our country is headed for a train wreck. Um, and I, I don't want to say this lightly, but we're going from lockdown to lockdowns that are that are hurting people, suicide, depression, the impacts on children, killing small business. You can go to Walmart, but you can't go to church. Um, we did not protect the vulnerable well. We've got big inflation numbers coming up. Um, we've got a war on affordable energy. 
we've got low productivity numbers. And I don't mean to be a downer, but we have a lot of investment issues of, of capital flows going out of the country, record deficits and debt. We haven't even empowered patients to use a variety of treatment methods for COVID. It seems like the silver bullet is always the vaccines, as you've alluded to. And we don't even talk about being healthy, exercise, uh, losing weight. And vitamin D, vitamin D. Vitamin D. And it's been a steady drumbeat of fear. The media is missing in action. It's all about case numbers. And um, so in light of that train wreck, I'm going to ask you a really silly question. Why should we even care about the Charter of Re Rights and Freedoms when, in fact, this is such a mess? Our economy, our way of life. How does this action? I know you devote tremendous amount of work early morning till late at night working at this issue. Why is it so important to you? And why should it be important to Canadians? Because we made a significant fundamental decision in 1981-82. The number one is that we would be a sovereign nation and all future amendments to our constitution would be done in Canada. And two, we considered and decided that these rights and freedoms that were unwritten should be written and not only written in a law, but written in the Constitution. Mm. So that fundamentally enhanced the democracy of Canada. So that if, if today, what, what's happening today gets approved by the courts of this nation, then our democracy will have taken a significant step backward because our rights and freedoms will no longer be protected. This will become the new precedent so two or three years from now, when a government wants to, uh, something happens, unusual, and they declare an emergency, they can automatically uh, use this period of time, 2020, 21 into 22, as a precedent to say, we're only doing what was done then, and this is a precedent, and therefore we'll take precedence again, and our rights and freedoms will be gone. So this sets a precedent that was okay. allowed to stand for what happens in the future and our democracy will be demeaned and we will no longer be a genuine democracy on this planet. Now, the other thing is, <clears throat> as you said earlier, we were, we are a great, we were a great country. We were a great country. We were a, a very, a, and most Canadians know this, we were, but we've lost it over those 40 years. Our health system right now is one of the worst in the OECD. In order to get an electrical permit in this country, we come 164th in the world and how long it takes to get an electrical permit, to get a construction permit, 122, uh, we're 122 in the world. So we're no longer advancing. Other countries are running while we're crawling or standing still. We have lost our edge as a country, both in research and development, in education and in health. And you mentioned capital flows. We're retarding the, the, the development of our natural resources. In this. Who would have ever thought? that governments would pass legislation to retard the development of our natural resources. Okay. So Brian, Brian, in many ways, then you've, you've powerfully <clears throat> linked the issue of good governance with good government and the ability to thrive economically, socially, and from a quality of life. Is that it? Yes, absolutely. No question. No question. And if we, if we lose this battle on Charter of Rights and Freedoms, then uh, where, where do we go from here? Where, 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 where do we go from here? We, we, have, uh, we have governments who are running roughshod with existing legislation, which, which has no bearing on you know, what's going on today. It was legislation that was passed years ago. Right. Regulations being promulgated under that old regulation to 
deal with a new situation today. So that, that goes back to section one. It was you, you must demonstrably justify, demonstrably just. And I remember when we put demonstrably in there, we wanted to make it stronger than just justify. In other words, governments have got to go out of their way to prove that what they're doing is of more benefit right, than cost. And they did not do that. There's no study, no report, no cost benefit analysis. Yeah. So, just, so just on the number one test, they fail badly. Right. So how can you say this is intelligent public policy if you haven't instructively looked at those cost benefits? What about the role of judges here? We've got a system. We've got the executive, the legislature, e.g. the House of Commons. Uh, We do this right across our federal system. And we have the judiciary. We've noticed a number of key decisions, uh, one of which was in Manitoba, where the judge um, went along with the, uh, the, the government's right to to do what it wants are they doing their job what happened what's your analysis well, well this is the, the this is the saddest perhaps this is the saddest part of the story today this is the saddest part of the story and some people uh uh who are more knowledgeable in the law who are professors and so on and got very gloomy uh, a few weeks and months ago when, when these decisions came down and more or less said it was all over but of course we haven't gone to the courts of appeal in the provinces yet nor have we gone to the supreme court of canada but it, does, it doesn't augur well when you have a judge in British Columbia, one in Manitoba, making decisions without considering all of the elements of the charter. And it was under the charter that they made these rulings. And so they erred in law. They erred in, in, in their application of the charter. For example, the charter starts with the supremacy of God and the rule of law. None of these decisions make any record. Uh, recognition of that at all. And yet it's under those two principles that all interpretations are supposed to be made. And in the case of Manitoba, the judge there, this was unbelievable, where he just said, I'll believe what the uh, the Ministry of Health or the public health officer says. No, no, that's not your job. Your job is to look at all the evidence, not just the, the Minister of Health evidence, but yes, look at that too, but all other independent scientific evidence of which there was mountains that he didn't even look at. I know the lawyers who argued that case, who were involved in that case, and he never even looked at the other evidence. He only, he selected what evidence he wanted to look at, and that was the government evidence. And he's not allowed to do that. That's not his job. His job description is to bring in a decision based upon the evidence presented in the context of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms provisions. He did not do that. And that's why I'm so angry and why I was involved in this fight long before his decision, but I'm involved in the fight even more since his decision. Okay, so in that case, you're saying that the judge really didn't do their job by looking at the evidence, taking the case seriously, and obviously looking at, at, at picking up the information that is, is well-documented um, credible sources. It's not like it's it's uh, hearsay or anything like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 they don't have the luxury. A judge doesn't have the luxury to select various parts of of the charter. His job is to take all of the relevant parts of the charter to this case and apply it. He didn't do that because he never even mentioned supremacy of God or the rule of law, which okay. he is he's forced to do. He is is not is not a, a discretionary thing for the judge, nor is it discretionary for him to only use certain science. He's got to look at the totality of the science, but he makes no mention of that in his decision at all. Oh, in his okay. final adjudication, so, he makes no mention of that at all. So so where do you see hope here in terms of, um, let's say, in the case of, of the court, 
Um, you have a vision for enabling or encouraging, prodding a first minister to refer this matter to the Supreme Court, um, to be able to check in with them and say, hey, is there a violation of the charter going on? Can you tell us more about that plan? Yeah, I just want to say before I say that, that one of the things that's happened over the last uh, f five or six decades is that the law of jurisprudence and the proponents of jurisprudence, people involved in the law, have bought into a new notion of, of jurisprudence, which is called the living tree. Whereas uh, th this Charter of Rights was, was, was written in, in uh, 1981-82, we're at liberty sort of to not only interpret it, but to expand upon it. Mm, and that's okay. not their role. Legislators make law, judges interpret law. Okay, what so they you're... have done is that they have moved, and most of the law schools in Canada and lawyers coming out over the last 30 or 40 years have been sold a bill of goods, which is the living tree concept of law interpretation, rather than saying, this is the law as it was written, it still applies today, but if you want to change it, go ahead and change it. Okay, so, so you're, you're, we'll you're, you're spelling out though, Brian, the classic concern that judges are becoming activists in their roles rather than respectful of the original intention of people like yourself who are involved. They have demeaned the sacredness of a constitution. They're looking at a constitution if it's only another federal law or another provincial law. And that's the distinction that they've got to uh, eliminate. There is a distinction. The constitution is the only national document. All other documents are federal or provincial. This is the glue that's to keep Canada together. It's to have permanence by its definition. And by doing what they're doing, they're eviscerating all the concepts that are relevant to what a constitution okay. really is. So, so Brian, on this point, I do want to pause for a sec because this question just came up uh, from our audience. Um, and the timing here is so opportune. And basically, it's a question that says, basically, were we better to have had no constitution in 1982 and kept with the initial system? Because a charter arguably invites a, a greater role of judges and more judicial activism. Is that one of the downsides of the of the 19th? Well, well, you can argue that, but most people at the time, and most people believe that if you got something in writing, it's better if it, than if it's not in writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like a pretty sensible kind of conclusion to come to, one would think. And so, therefore, uh, it's a great theoretical argument, I think, uh, to to uh, to uh, advance. Uh, and one can always, I suppose, we can go back and say we really shouldn't have the 1867. We were getting along very well, and we were getting responsible government. Most of the dominions of Canada before the Dominion of Canada mm -hmm. had advanced all the way to a had all, they all had their own legislative assemblies and they all became responsible governments. And every, in, in other words, everybody had to be elected to be in the government and we were getting along very well. So, you know, I think you can, you can if you take that argument to a sort of logical conclusion, we wouldn't have a country Canada for that matter. Yeah, and, and it's and a then, complex then, debate. I, I realize that, but again, it does under underline the importance that um, we- What uh, we have to we do is- to, we need to be against judicial activism, quite frankly. Precisely, precisely. And the problem with a democracy, democracy has never been the governing uh, system on this planet. Okay, it's never been in the majority. It's always been a minority governing system, is today. Mm -hmm. And losing ground, by the way, over the last 17 years, according to Freedom Watch. So the point of it all is, is that we do not recognize the fragility of our system and that a system of democracy is only as good as the level of civic participation therein. 
That's where we fail in the last 40 or 50 years. Nobody teaches civics anymore. Nobody teaches history anymore. There's just a mishmash of a whole bunch of stuff. And you go away together and do some kind of an assignment and pass it in and, and, and get a pass mark on it. And you know nothing about the history. So well, well said, Brian. Of our plates, you know? it, you're making a clarion call for civic education and for, against uh, citizens not to take for granted these rights and freedoms. Now, you notice that yesterday, the uh, Prime Minister of the UK, uh, Mr. Boris Johnson, made the dramatic announcement that uh, their nation is done with lockdowns, mass vaccine mandates and all the rest, I understand. And we also have lots of other jurisdictions such as Sweden, Denmark, various other states that are managing carefully but are fully open, so to speak. Would this not be an opportunity then? You're a former Premier again, uh, Brian to pause and look at what we've done and say, you know what, we're doubling down on the same old strategies. Maybe we need to learn from these other jurisdictions. Yeah, the, the, the biggest problem with Boris Johnson, not with Sweden, not with Florida, but with Boris Johnson, is his job is on the line as leader. So one has to wonder just how much of this is genuine uh, uh, new policy making. Uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, he suddenly is yeah, getting converted to what is the, the truth, or whether this is just a, another uh, uh, crass political move on his part to try to save his job. But in the case of Ron DeSantis, in the case of Sweden, in the case of the state in India, which brought in early treatment, in the case of even El Salvador, which brought in early treatment and didn't have the hospitalizations that other places have, uh, they were doing it genuinely out of, out of real understanding of the science, right? But, but, it, but it does provide an opportunity. But to show how bad it is in Canada, I woke up one morning and realized that there was a provision in all of the uh, laws of all of the provinces, which gave a premier the opportunity to take whatever measure his government had passed and refer it directly to his appeal court, call a reference procedure, mm -hmm. very simple. And they could refer it directly to their highest court and get a constitutional decision as to whether what they were doing was constitutional or not, okay? So if any premier of the country from, I think it was in October, I wrote the latter part of October. I wrote all the premiers and said, you have that power. Why won't you go to your highest court if you're so convinced that you're right? If you're so convinced that this is all about public health and you're preying on the, on the news every day with your ads, using my money, uh, that, that this is so necessary. Well, then let's, let's test it. You, you must agree to that, Mr. Premier. Not one of the 10 premiers took me up on that. Uh, suggestion. And they all have the same power to do that. I checked out every province. They all can do this tomorrow morning. By just a stroke of the pen of an executive council, they could refer this. So this is how dangerous and how bad the situation in Canada really is. And so they're only going to change now. Talk about Boris Johnson. They're only going to change now if they're forced to change. If they're forced to change. Okay. And that, that kind of force of decision is obviously through the public square and discussion and phone calls. And exactly. And like the truckers yeah. movement now and, and others, which is a more, you know, it's a political move, but it's also an economic movement because of course their jobs are affected and, and, and if they can cut the supply chain, they might get more people on their side to say, Oh my gosh, right. The government is stopping this. So we got to get after the government. Canada is not a country which is easily, easily embraces civil disobedience. This is one of our other weaknesses as a country. The United States had their Bill of Rights in 1791, only 15 years after they became a nation. We never got our Bill of Rights or Charter Rights 114 years after becoming a nation. Mm -hmm. So they have a history, right, of civil disobedience, 
of uh, uh, honor for individual rights and freedoms that we don't. They have a culture of that. We don't have that kind of culture. And they have a culture of standing up and do look at the Supreme Court of the United States. They've already ruled that the president of the United States decisions to right to force mandates yeah, upon right. companies over 100 employees is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. We have nothing yet, even in our courts of appeal, right. the provinces. But our courts are missing missing in action. Um, so I, I want to just turn back to the Oaks test. There's a question that came up about that. Can you clarify why these actions don't meet? the uh the the oaks test and what is the oaks test oh the oaks test is is is, is, a, is a, a court decision out of a i think it was a narcotics case where they took an individual who they accused of possessing a marijuana which was illegal at the time and they were all, and they also accused him of trafficking and him and his lawyer used the charter that his, his rights were being infringed upon and the judge was forced to use um, to, to look at the charter had to look at the charter and then looked at section one to see whether right and 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 then and started to describe what he understood as as section one and it was a it was a a, a description of section one closer to what i'm saying section one is it's not a complicated uh, sentence right it's not a complicated thing that the, i put it in the letter to uh, to uh, the minister yesterday to show what he described as they could do versus what was really the section one right it's very simple um, phraseology and uh, <clears throat> so the judge in the oaks case came the closest to describing uh, what section one meant as we meant it when we wrote it in 1981. Okay. you know he, he even mentioned you know we've got to we've got to be careful here because this is going to be done in a free and democratic society well if it was a free and democratic society like oh, the oaks test wanted it all of the parliaments would be open. There would be parliamentary committees bringing right. in experts from all sides and examining what the government exactly. is doing. Yeah. And that's not happening. So yeah. there's no parliamentary democracy. In other words, there's no free and democratic society. So the tests are not being met. And the Oates test, thank you for raising it, is the one decision that has been made related to the Charter, which comes close to understanding uh, the very simple meaning of Section 1. All right. I do have a comment. Um, there's a, a member of the audience that says, as a lawyer for 40 years, I've been absolutely stunned at the court's abandonment of their fundamental duties in this so-called pandemic. It is almost as if they have lost their minds. Those are this person's uh, words, not mine. I agree with Mr. Peckford. These judges should be reported as aberrant in their judicial decisions and removed from the bench. The lack of education commitment by citizens is remarkable in its absence. Any comment on that? Uh, oh, only that uh, it, it, since I went sort of public on the reference procedure in October and through Christmas and now in the new year, uh, I have had uh, an accelerated number of inquiries from judges, from uh, lawyers all across the nation who want me to participate in some of their court actions because they believe what I'm saying is similar uh, and their conclusion is the same as the lawyer you just mentioned who's on our program today who's and who wrote that or expressed that view. There are more and more of them coming forward all the time, understanding now, getting a better understanding of what the constitution means, right? And how something so simple as those words, that section one is, is so simple, right? Yeah, reasonable limits, right? As it progressed by law, by law, 
you know, demonstrably justified. How can you, how can you fool that up? How can you mess that up? I mean, you got to be really working at it to mess yeah. up a simple sentence, right? A grade eight would, would understand the section one. So uh, I, we've gone off the rails over the last 40, 50 years in so many ways. And one, and one of the most crucial ways now that we now recognize is how the advancement of jurisprudence has been to the detriment of the person. It will, of the individual. That, Brian? Can, you, can you expound on that? In terms yeah, of because what, what has really happened is, is that through this living tree kind of concept and philosophy that's being taught at the schools, that the individual becomes less and less and the group becomes more and more. And if judges see, I don't know how stupid they are not to realize that polls can change one day to the next, one week to the next on the same subject. But yet they <clears throat> are uh, looking at, Beverly McLaughlin was a great um, advocate of this, who was the Chief Justice for quite a few years. And so she had quite an impact upon on, on jurisprudence in this country. And so what, what they have done is they've developed a, a, a procedure in their heads that they'll listen to what the, the quote, the public are saying. And law will move with what, the pub, what, the, what they perceive to be the public's new position on this. Now, okay. this is pretty... That's, this is pretty dangerous stuff. This so, is pretty so stuff. Brian, I, I do want to ask a question that tries to link up a number of issues here without uh, trying to be absurd here. But I'm, I'm going to ask you, our focus today has really been on the overreach of government and its impingement on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms vis-a-vis COVID-19. But COVID-19 isn't the only issue. And I think you've alluded to this. This has been a couple decades in coming with the decrease in parliamentary power or, or democracy in that context, we've got the media not necessarily doing its job. And they're of course, one of our key um, pillars of, of our civic society. But we also have other issues like um, obviously vaccine mandates are one. We have the monitoring of Canadians' private cell data of all things. We also have the fear and hysteria regarding the so-called climate crisis as a pretext to, again, legislate uh, certain behaviors or even ways of thinking. We have um, kind of a story mantra that's talked about again uh, and, and is almost off limits when it comes to debate, and that is the so-called inherent evil of Canada and its systematic racism. And so there's a, there's a kind of a redefinition of, uh, quote, hate speech and what's acceptable thought. Uh, so we've got all these kinds of fronts coming together. Does that reflect a profound overall disregard for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and this emphasis on individual rights, Brian? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question about it. I think the climate policy, for example, that you mentioned, once again, based on very, very poor science, very poor science, and, and they were able to very early on in a few decades ago uh, preach this business of consensus, which is not even a, a scientific word. It's a political word. It should never have been used when there was no consensus at all. It, it came out of the, uh, one, news one news magazine story. So your point is well taken, that on a number of fronts now, society has moved away from respect for the individual, for respect for the individual voter, for the rights and freedoms of those individual voters, accommodated within the larger context of there being a, a society. The, the, the question becomes, to what degree does that society need to be regulated? Okay, we've got, uh, we need a Bank of Canada. 
Sure, uh, we need one of finance. We need security, so we need a security system and a police force, right? And we and we have various municipal governments under the uh, control of the provinces. And then, how far more should should we go? Uh, you know, to what degree should we go? And what has happened in Canada? We have allowed through our lack of participation of citizens. I've been saying at public meetings that I've been holding over the last two or three weeks that you should demand that your MLA and your MPP meet with you every three months. And then you go through what happened in the last three months in the House of Commons and so on, right? And where, what, what, what's your position on all of this? Here's what we think of what you did, what's coming up now in the next three months. And whether the House of Commons is open or not, they should be meeting on a regular basis, quarterly, yeah. with the with their MPPs and MLAs. That keeps them on the straight and narrow. So, so it really would break them out of their bubbles, wouldn't it? It would so, it would so. But it's very concerning to me as a citizen and as a former first minister of this country to see on all these uh, files of secrecy, climate, uh, you know, pandemic, right, hate speech and the like, the degree to which governments are taking over. And of course they, are, they have in resource development now. And by, by doing these, um, these various additional studies, because it's interprovincial and the federal government has some say in it, they can effectively close down or significantly inhibit the normal development of resource development in the Prairie provinces. So we, we, have, we have a real crisis on, on our hands as to what kind of a nation we want to live in. What kind of a nation? Is it a democratic nation based upon fundamental rights and freedoms for the individual or is it not? That's what it's coming down to. Well, and, and Brian, I guess what strikes me about your comments and your analysis is that how much fear crisis has been used as a point of leverage to move an advanced agenda that under, quote, normal times of rational thinking, we would never even dream of implementing. So I think that's a great concern. Now, I did want to pause as we near the end of our session and talk to you a little bit about our governing elites. And I know that you're a man of, of considerable experience. You rub shoulders with, I think, some of the, uh, frankly, the legends of, of Canadian politics. Um, and you've seen people up close in action. You work with them uh, even to help give birth to the Constitution over that grueling marathon of 18 months. How would you look at this situation in terms of, of leadership? It seems to me that and I don't mean this disrespectfully to any person in particular, we need good people in politics, but it's almost like we have um, a terribly um, weak set of leadership skills and culture. Um, and, and, you know, hence the, the nature of our country, we're in deep trouble in, on, on many different files, as much as we can turn this around. But what are your observations? How do we, are these elites really serving us? Who are they serving and, and what's, how can we change this? Well, I think this is where the Frontier Centre comes in. It's one of the, the leading sparkling lights within this firmament that has gone, that has deteriorated. Perhaps, you're perhaps the only one left in Canada now that's completely independent and provides the opportunity for people like me and others to express our views to, a, to the Canadian audience. And we need more frontier centers, or we need a larger frontier. We need we need the, these these institutions, and we and, and that's where we really fall down. Now let's take them. Start with the media that you mentioned earlier. The media used to be a really independent group of people who would would bring you the other side of the story, who would be critical of what's going on in public policy, try to find out both sides, 
and let the people decide. They've all become opinion pieces now. There's no more news per se. Mm-hmm. Even the, 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 a news item, as so described, when you get down through it, they've taken a, they've taken a side before you end the, the story. And the other thing is a fundamental mistake that was made was when the federal government of Canada and the uh, media of Canada decided to get together and the federal government passed over $600 million to the press over the last three years. This was a fundamental mistake, which completely uh, demeaned and, and uh, what shall I say, negatively affected the objectivity of the fourth estate as it's so-called. So the media is no longer that independent arm out there that citizens can, can depend upon, okay? Like it used to be. The business community itself, has gone silent. And the other reason for that is, is that everybody in some way or another is bought off. This is the problem with what we got. Like for example, all the provinces, we have no Ron DeSantos. We have no governor like they have in South Dakota or in Nebraska. There's 20 or 25 uh, states in the United States that are very, very independent and took on the federal government. The Canada Health Act right now sees over 40 billion this year transferred to all the provinces, Mm -hmm. okay? And the Social Transfer uh, Act sees over 15 billion. So we've got 55 to 60 billion going from the federal government out to all of these provinces. So they are now somewhat conflicted. They don't want to upset the federal government and not get these billions and billions of dollars. And then on top of those two things is equalization. (coughs) And five of the provinces get equalization, including Manitoba, where the Frontier Institute is located. It's a have not province as defined under uh, our rules and regulations, right? And so you've got five provinces that are not going to be on side anyway because they don't want to stop getting equalization. And, and then on top of that, the health transfer and so on. So everybody, and then in the business community, when it's convenient for them, they take money from the government like the media did, right? And so they have, once again, you know, check, check, checkmate, right? They're, they're checkmated all the way to the bank. So where is the independence of anybody in the country today? Everybody, and by the way, I had people coming to me, asking me to get lawyers for them to fight their case. I had the school board and municipal level and they couldn't find a lawyer. Because all, a lot of the lawyers in all of the provinces are under retainer from either a, the government directly, a provincial government agency, the federal government directly, or a federal government agency. Wow. Or a municipal government or a municipal agency. Okay, so Brian, you did quite a download there, an overview of analysis. But part of your insight is with the sheer amount of spending, all these different so-called stakeholders or elements of society have been influenced, surely, by the, the monies that they're receiving from the state. So in the case of the media, I don't know if people realize that fully, the hundreds of millions of dollars that have flowed to the media to sustain them. And surely that has a big impact. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And I heard today announced yesterday or whatever by the government of BC, because they've, they've been under tremendous pressure because a lot of small businesses are still in trouble, had been giving money to the small businesses because of the lockdowns, right? And now they've just increased it, okay? So they get more and more dependent upon the government while they're into this pandemic. And then after, right? There's a dependency that then gets ingrained into the mentality, even of good business people. So they get in trouble the next time, they'll, they'll go and ask government for money. So this is, this is a slippery slope that leads to, uh, that, that doesn't lead to uh, pure capitalism, nor does it lead to pure democracy. It leads yeah. to the opposite. And, so, well, and, and I think it, what you're underlying, um, uh, Mr. Peckford, is the whole notion that if everybody or many people do work for the government, the state, 
And uh, we have this culture that's um, affected profoundly by the amount of money that does impact our culture, our way of thinking. And we don't really are, aren't thinking that as engaged citizens exactly. and, uh, as people that truly understand how precious our individual rights and freedoms are. And that this is nothing against um, advocating for good health or um, taking due diligence. We can, chew, we can chew gum and walk at the same time, right, Brian? One would hope, one would hope that we could, exactly. And, and uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and reams of others, people in Canada, Dr. Byron Bridal, uh, Francis Christian in Saskatchewan, uh, uh, right? Dr. Paul Alexander used to teach at McMaster University, we've got reams of scholars, many of them on my uh, on the comp on the uh, organization that I lead right now, taking back our freedoms. They're on our on our board, where we're fighting for getting these freedoms back, and they have all produced you know stellar internationally uh, judged uh, uh, papers which demonstrate that what what the governments are doing is not justified. So, uh, we, yeah, we have a lot. I want to mention for your audience might be interested in this. And you, you, of course, it would be too. April the 18th, 1980. When we began the constitutional discussions. A year and four months. 12 and four, the 16, almost right at the beginning when we started the talks. I produced a document giving Newfoundland's position on the charter and on the, on the whole business of constitutional change. In the introduction, as it relates to charter of rights, the final paragraph of three paragraphs said this, while explicit constitutional reference will have a significant normative value, the ultimate guarantee of liberty rests with the vigilance of the citizens, the accountability of government the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law. Bravo. Bravo, the Honorable Brian Peckford. We're so grateful that you could join us today and uh, very grateful for the audience's participation, both comments and questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get through all of them, but um, we're so grateful that uh, you have been a friend of Frontier and indeed one of our nation's leading advocates and voices for our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and good public policy. So on behalf of everyone, I'd like to thank you, Mr. Peckford, and continue to invite you to keep standing. Thank you very much. And I applaud the Frontier Center for what it's doing. And please keep your independence and keep having webinars like this. I think they're unbelievably valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, that brings an end to uh, this session. I wanna thank all of you, including the Friends of Frontier who joined us today. I encourage you to keep involved with the frontier and we welcome your comments and encouragement. I want to uh, be sure to join us for our next Leaders on the Frontier on February the 17th when we welcome Dr. Brian Day, former president of the Canadian Medical Association and president of the Canby Clinic. Dr. Day will be joining us to discuss Canada's challenging healthcare system and a vision for patient-centered healthcare system. Imagine that. Please join us and be sure to invite others. And thank you to all of you who donate to make our, our mission possible. Frontier is strictly nonpartisan and we do not accept any government funding. And your support makes our mission to improve public policy for a better tomorrow possible. Thank you so much. 
So that's it for today. And on behalf of all of us at Frontier, remember, without free and open discussion, we are not thinking. So wherever you are, be sure to ask good questions to build a better nation. And on behalf of all of us, thank you for joining us.